name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. In the UK, the government has reportedly begun planning for a reasonable worst-case scenario that could see energy shortages and blackouts over the winter. Meanwhile, authorities in the EU have rolled out a variety of energy-saving measures to reduce the risk of disruption, including a plan by the European Commission to reduce gas use in Europe by 15%. With the war in Ukraine resulting in gas supply cuts from Russia and soaring prices, the situation in the coming months looks bleak. This has several implications. An immediate one is how to manage likely shortages and whether and how to shield consumers from the resulting sky-high prices. Another is the impact on the transition to a green economy. Russia's squeeze on gas supplies to Europe has prompted calls for an acceleration to renewable energy sources as a means of achieving domestic energy security. But this isn't by any means a quick fix. It will require trillions of dollars of investment over the next decade to put in place a more sustainable energy infrastructure. In the meantime, several European countries are considering restarting or increasing their use of coal-fired power plants as a temporary measure, a backward step on the path to cleaner, less carbon-intensive energy, but one that's considered necessary to mitigate the risk of power shortages and the resultant blow to the economy. Joining me once again is Scott O'Malia, ISDA's Chief Executive. And Scott, can you tell us a little bit about our guest for this episode? Sure. I'll be speaking with Kevin Book, the Managing Director of Clearview Energy Partners, a research firm based in Washington, D.C. Kevin is the co-founder of the firm and heads the research team covering oil, natural gas, and refined products, as well as coal policy. He's also an old friend of mine from my days in the U.S. Senate when we focused on loan guarantees and financing alternative energy projects. Now, I'd like to get Kevin's thoughts on the topics you just mentioned, the impact of the war in Ukraine, the energy outlook for the EU, and challenges facing the transition to a more sustainable energy infrastructure. I'd also like to get his views on the recent developments in the U.S., particularly the impact of President Biden's historic climate bill, which was recently passed in the U.S. Senate and House and signed into law. Sounds great. Over to you then, Scott. Kevin, welcome to The Swap. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, This is no true crime podcast, but we're going to rip straight from the headlines here. Energy markets, we have a European crisis right now. Frankly, there's a pretty much a crisis everywhere with high energy prices. But in in Europe, it's particularly acute. And the outlook for the energy markets in Europe is grim. Right now, as Putin leverages Russia's oil dominance, natural gas to pressure the European governments into easing his sanctions. What effect will this have on prices as we go into the winter and beyond? Scott, it's a good question and a timely one. You know, it's not just oil, it's not just gas, it's also coal. And when you roll them together, Russia's been supplying about 5.5% of global demand, global primary energy demand, with those three resources. And as of the start of August, the coal embargo for Europe rolled on. We've got an oil embargo coming December 5th, products embargo February 5th. So more tightness to come. When you ask, like, what does it mean to be short Well, it's good to ask, where are we now? And if we take sort of a headline 75% below year ago gas transmission by pipe into Europe, and let's take, you know, all of that coal offline for now, it probably finds another home, and say half a million barrels per day of crude and products missing from the market that Russia used to be able to sell, we're at about 1% of global energy demand, just not being supplied at all. And so when you think about that, you know, it sounds like a small number. What's 1%? But really what it is is a continuum. 
on one end of the continuum, 100% of the world can do with 1% less. And on the other end of the continuum, I guess 1% of the world is doing with 100% less. And what mediates where you fall in that continuum has a lot to do with your access to capital, your financial well-being within and across countries. And so the impacts of this are being felt far outside Europe. And although BTUs are not perfectly substitutable, that's an academic exercise. And if I had anyone to try to burn coal in a gas combined cycle turbine and to see how it doesn't really substitute. But there are plants that are brought online to burn resources that were previously not burned. And one of those resources is fuel oil. So on the grid, as we're short gas in the world, we're seeing fuel oil generation coming back. And in addition to that, we're seeing standby generation and emergency generation also pulling from that already short diesel and products pool. So this is all before the December 5th embargo goes into place. And with that embargo, at least until a price cap, which I'm sure is a lively topic we'll get to, this is something that comes with insurance and, and shipping services sanctions that will potentially limit a significant number of barrels that might go to third markets that previously went to Europe. So more supply tightness on the rise. Last thing I'll say about this, which is to have power is to be in power. You can unplug a clock and time doesn't stop. But when you unplug a city for a day or so, you roll back time by centuries. It's really, when we're looking past just the oil barrel at the electrical grid and the reliance on gas as a power source, this has second order effects that are very significant. So looking into your crystal ball, what do you really see? I mean, we've seen good news recently that European storage for gas is actually fairly robust. How bad is it going to get here in Europe? Well, so storage is an offset to the loss of supply, but it doesn't fully replace that supply. And so the answer to that question, particularly when it comes to the gas issue, uh, is really going to be whether or not it keeps flowing. It's been the case so far that major pipes, Nord Stream 1 right now, you know, flickering on and off like a bad light bulb, ostensibly because of Porto Vaya compressor station maintenance issues. These issues may be real. They may be plausibly deniable pretexts for exerting power, energy, hegemony over Europe. But whatever they are, they're tightening the market now, and they're probably a preview of things to come. If you ask, where does the offensive intensify? Russia is a country that knows how to use winter when it comes to the military. Well, that's not encouraging. Now, you mentioned that BTUs are not particularly fungible in every case, but the U.S. is impacted by this as well. It's a global energy market, particularly for oil, but increasingly with natural gas. The U.S. has responded to the crisis by releasing the unprecedented volume of crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and attempting to coordinate a price cap on Russian oil sales. Now, maybe the petroleum reserve might be a little more successful than the price cap, but I'll leave that to you to answer. OPEC has done very little to alleviate the situation, and in their last announcement just increased supply by 100,000 barrels, which was received as disappointing news. How will all of these developments impact oil prices, and what do we further expect from Russia in response? Well, so the SPR draw, the U.S. SPR draw that President Biden promised in March was 180 days of 1 million barrels per day from the U.S., plus a corresponding amount, which turned out to be roughly 60 million barrels from cooperating international energy agency partners. The U.S. has gone through with a series of sales in response to that edict and drawn down the SPR pretty significantly, but it didn't start in March. It actually started 
in November, on November 23rd, President Biden declared that he would, through a combination of congressionally mandated sales and exchanges, move 50 million barrels out of the SPR into the market. And so we're really looking at an overall tally in barrels moved since late November of close to 200 million barrels either announced or awarded out of the SPR in the U.S. alone. It is supposed to end in October. It's possible it might end in October. It's also supposed to be the case that cooperating partners are delivering their barrels, and it's not obvious that they all have done, which means that there's either backloaded barrels coming, which is, I suppose, potentially bearish for the market because you could have a lot more strategic crude ledgering over from government inventories to commercial ones, or it means that maybe they're going to run past the deadline or maybe not run at all. Now, when we talk about this, we can't do it in isolation. We have to think about the other sources of supply that the U.S. is looking at. You mentioned the price cap, and I'll come to that because I share your skepticism. But one of the tools that, whether implicitly or explicitly, is being used is the Iran nuclear deal negotiation. If we think of Iran as having moved roughly a million barrels per day of crude and condensate over the last couple of years into the market, that implies upside of between 1.2 and 1.4 million barrels per day, sometime over six to nine months after re-implementation day. And the bargain itself is supposed to include some 50 million barrels of sales starting on day 60, if we're to believe what's been written in the press. So in other words, there's some significant volume that could come from other places. The administration is also looking at new leniencies with regard to Venezuela. And even though those barrels would likely be in the 100, 200,000 barrels per day range if they were to come on stream in the near term. New contract terms between Western companies, particularly one U.S. company in, in particular, and the Maduro regime could actually lead to expansion over time. So the question of whether they dip deeper into strategic reserves has something to do with that set of other negotiations going on. But there is this issue of the price cap. And to look at the price cap for what it is, is to ask what it's supposed to do. And there were two objectives enumerated by the G7. The first was to keep molecules moving to markets. The idea, essentially, that we would keep the world supplied, but with the second thing happening at the same time, which was to cut off revenues to the Kremlin. And as it stands right now, the price cap that's been discussed, at least by Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyamo in his itinerant travels around the world, has not come with any sort of secondary sanctions backstop. No way that the U.S. can enforce compliance. So if third countries decide to buy Russian crude at a price above the agreed-upon cap, what is the penalty? If there is no penalty, then what we're really talking about is a weakening of sanctions. Essentially, if you think about this, where it falls against the backdrop of Western tolerance from June 19th forward, where Macron lost his parliament, Boris Johnson and you know Mario Draghi, we can see Chancellor Schultz with low approval ratings. This may be actually a, a barometer of Western willingness to endure pain in the name of defending democracy and Ukrainian territorial integrity. Now, there are some possibilities that the cap could be executed in a way that does come with enforcement. But there are some challenges in implementing that. If you think about how the world works today, you know, quantitative sanctions are the way we've been doing it for a while. And I just mentioned that Iran has been moving, in spite of those quantitative sanctions, a million barrels per day. Satellites can see ships lining up next to one another in the open sea, transferring cargoes with transponders off. Those satellites can't see bills of lading. Those satellites can't see 
parallel wire transactions, make whole transactions for surpluses above cap compliant transactions. So enforcing could be very difficult even with the secondary sanctions regime in place. But there are also consequences. Having talked about a cap and talking about December 5th as the phase-in date for the European Union sanctions, you have to think about what it means to not have a cap in that context. What happens? Well, if you're not going to be able to secure the Russian crude that you thought you could, where are you going to get crude? This implies a bid on crude maybe four to six weeks backward from December 5th. So we're really talking about mid-October, which inconveniently for the Biden administration happens to coincide with the run-up to the midterm congressional election. And so one of the dynamics that I think you're probably also noticing is that there's considerable concern about what gasoline prices have done in the U.S. As the U.S. goes around the world looking at these mechanisms to mitigate extremely high prices for consuming countries, they're also thinking very much about the politics of a pump price spike here in in Washington, but more importantly, in those marginal districts, those moderates who are at risk for the Democrats trying to defend seats in the House of Representatives especially. And that's where we start looking at bigger interventions on the horizon, Scott. Things like product export limits being discussed, not off the table, not yet anyway, and being threatened because inventories are precariously low in the upper Northeast United States. The last thing I'll say just about all this, I mean, it's a big topic, a big question. You gave me a lot, probably too much, but LNG deserves some discussion here because New England in particular pays a global price for the gas it imports because there isn't adequate pipeline transportation from the essentially the wealth of gas that is the Marcellus Shale, it has to come in on the sea priced closer to the global markers, the tidal transfer facility in the Netherlands, the JKM in Asia. And that means that there's an inflationary aspect in a bidding war for gas consumers in the gas land of plenty. That too is challenging. And so when we look at the politics of this, sort of against the economic dynamics, we do see some additional tightness coming, and failure to deliver on a cap could end up being quite bullish, given the implications for alternative supply sourcing. It's amazing. This market is fascinating, and having your perspective is terrific. Now, in the hedging markets, we've heard from a lot of people talking about the impact that this has had, price volatility, market volatility has had on margin and the availability of collateral. In Europe, it's been raised, uh, having big impacts, particularly earlier this year, on people trading and trying to manage supplies as well as hedging their position. And there's some complaints that margin needs to be addressed. Part of the financial reforms was to make sure that all trades were margined, whether they were cleared or non-cleared. This has had a knock-on impact as well as people are scrambling to get collateral for these bigger price moves. Any thought on that? I mean, I suspect they're going to see more of that if your predictions, the first three questions are going to come true. There's going to be continue to be more price pressure, more price volatility, therefore more margin requirements. Yeah, Scott, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, given what I just said, the incentive to hedge is pretty strong. You're not going to want to go naked into that much volatility. But unfortunately, doing that means that you're probably also going to face greater margin obligations to try to manage that risk. And when we talk about this in the context of, again, not just the economics, but the politics of inflation, the all-in cost of sourcing energy for industrials in particular, for end users, 
this rolls into that. It has second-order consequences. It has implications for the producers and the providers who are having trouble making markets when they've actually got product to sell. It's not the only frictional cost out there. There's a lot of other frictional costs that are showing up, everything from European emissions allowances to essentially a higher cost of capital implicitly introduced by disclosure requirements, which are pending before the SEC. So there's a lot of friction coming to markets, but you know, at a time of great volatility, great friction can be a problem. In addition to addressing their immediate energy needs, Europe, prior to the Russian invasion, was had an aggressive agenda on its transition to a cleaner, greener, more renewable-based grid and energy supply. But with this invasion that calls into question the basic energy security, which makes the transition challenges even more acute. As you well know, the investment to move from the fossil base to a more renewable is, is massive under the best of circumstances, and now you're facing major supply challenges just to keep maintain your energy security. Will Europe be able to break its dependence on Russian energy and switch to renewables? And how do you think this is going to impact that green agenda that was being debated here? I mean, it comes down to what we think of as a supplement versus a substitute. Last time I was in Brussels, I don't remember seeing a bumper sticker that said, energy transition brought to you by Russian gas. But to some extent, that was the case because there were low-cost fossil fuel resources balancing grids. Renewable deployment became more feasible and more viable. At the same time, of course, because those fossil resources were low-cost, it undercut the business case for a really rapid transition. Where are we now? Well, the volatility in prices introduces a pretty significant variable cost component in terms of risk. If you look at gas-fired generation in particular, which is very you know, fuel cost dependent, your variable cost risk is significant. If you want to get into transition metals and minerals, though, you're going to introduce fixed cost risks. And if you don't have the production in country or in friendly countries or sufficient capacity, then you're going to see some fixed price volatility in place of variable cost volatility, which is a different kind of security risk, a different kind of energy security risk. So Europe has an endogenous case for electrifying that they didn't have before. Right? You can make the argument now that for energy security reasons, it absolutely makes sense to speed up an electricity transportation transition. But to get there, to get all the hardware in place, not only the, the investment in sheer scale, but also what happens when you try to do things in a hurry. Usually factor cost inflation. If supply chain bottlenecks today are presenting problems, what will those problems look like when the acceleration of an urgent rush to green power comes up. But this gets back to sort of where we were in our policy discussions in 2019 and 2020. You know, very low-cost energy, essentially U.S. shale oil flowing into the world, took a lot of energy security risk off the table. People didn't talk about it as ardently as they once did. It no longer became a, a sticking point in these ambitious climate targets. It now seemed like, well, energy's cheap from a fossil resource. So what could go wrong with an aggressive substitution of new supply? But if they're not actually substitutes, right? If it's not actually a substitute, but merely a supplement to your existing base, then relying ever more on that resource is going to require supporting an additional infrastructure, which means everything from battery backups to a significant amount of distribution build out. In the end, an electrified fleet of cars is a terrific resource that can be leveraged in a bi-directional grid. 
in the middle between here and there, there's a lot of reliability and cost risk that shows up. In the end, supplements and substitutes are easy to think about when you look back at ethanol. The United States, a lot of importing economies said, let's look at biofuels as a diversification resource. Yes, but how much? You know, 10% on top of the existing base of fossil energy supply of petroleum was a was sort of a range extender. It was like when, when you were a kid in a time before cell phones and unexpected dinner guests showed up and mom put breadcrumbs in the hamburger and it went a little further. But what's 85 or 100% breadcrumbs? It's not hamburger at all. So we have to think about the real costs of delivering the same end user energy molecules and electrons that we're giving right now to end users through fossil fuels. And Europe is going to have to do it in a hurry. Do you want to make a guess on what their policy outcomes might be? Are they going to have to focus on security and push off the green agenda? Or do you think they're going to try to accelerate? The world is warming slowly, maybe alarmingly, but slowly. Ukraine is on fire right now. So the priority set has been clear, I think, since February 24th. Energizing Western economies also means stabilizing Western economies. I said you have to have power to be in power. I'm not kidding. You also have to have sufficient energy so that you can have alliances. Neighbors, longtime neighbors and friends, are starting to have discussions about emergency supply cutoffs. There's a country you're in that was talking about maybe not piping gas to the continent under emergency protocols that were agreed and understood long before this crisis emerged. Norway has made similar comments. The big suppliers are in their own right, concerned about having enough at home. In the U.S., I mentioned that we're talking about export limitations on products at a time when the world is short. How can this be? Well, this is the challenge. If we're not adequately sourcing, not only are incumbent governments facing significant problems, but we're also looking at the international alliances under renewed stress. So in the end, high prices have a tendency to usher out incumbent politicians faster than they usher in new technologies. Speaking of new technology, in the U.S., the Biden administration recently passed its historic climate bill that included $370 billion in the total of, I think, $700 billion in funding for clean energy, electric vehicles, and carbon sequestration initiatives. Can you give us a sense of the most important parts of this legislation and how it will impact the green transition in the U.S.? Yes, Scott, the most important part of it is the duration of the extension for a lot of these credits. So for most of the green development, it's been an on-again, off-again kind of world since about 1992 forward. Tax credits for a couple of years and then questions about whether they're going to be there. Now, that's great for the OEMs that are trying to sell hardware because nothing moves hardware like the incipient end of a credit. But it's not such good news for long-term strategic planning on transition. So 10 years is a good window. The flip side of that, though, is that these credits are different credits. This bill was passed in a different way than most of the clean energy tax credits have been over their many decades of history. Specifically, what's different about this are the Democrats passing it on a single-party basis with prevailing wage, which is to say union-friendly wages, and apprenticeship requirements tied to the credits. That means that we could find ourselves in a situation where a differently oriented Washington, an all-Republican Washington, might look at revising the credits before that stability actually runs through the 10-year window. Now, there's some interesting distinctions also about the credits themselves. The expansions of the credits included direct pay features 
theoretically expanding the franchise for the claimants of tax credits who otherwise wouldn't have tax liabilities and would try to otherwise market their credits through the tax equity market. Except that the limitation was imposed for most of the conventional credits only so that the direct pay would be available to the tax-exempt recipients, essentially expanding the franchise for credit recipients. For three credits, the carbon capture and storage credit, the clean hydrogen credit, and the advanced manufacturing credit, direct pay was available even to entities that were not tax-exempt. Those happened to be the credits that Energy Chairman Joe Manchin most favored in the package, and so it's not entirely a surprise. But some of this means that the true incentive value isn't as great as it had originally been hoped. The original proponents of a major green transition were looking for something that would allow developers to essentially take government cash in pocket and go to work with it right away. And it's not quite as rich as all that. There's a couple of other important components, too. The CCS credit, which you're very right to mention, was expanded considerably. And yet the credits here, if you look at them, they also come with this prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirement. And if you don't meet the requirement, if you don't meet those requirements to pay a prevailing wage and hire a certain number of apprentices, then you only receive one-fifth of the credit value. So there's a give and a take. Now, when you ask about how that really maps out, you know, a green energy company is going to say, well, I'm not going to pay those high wages. You know, in the end, they probably don't want to. In the end, they would prefer lower factor costs because that's what it means to be in business. On the other hand, if you look at the actual numbers, if you use the National Renewable Energy Laboratory's numbers, most recent numbers, say for a utility-scale wind project, paying the prevailing wage comes in at about roughly half of what a project would lose by giving up the, the 80% of credit value. So splitting the difference will still make sense. They'll probably do it. But what does this mean? Well, this means an autonomous shift in the workforce. And it's really the Biden administration's goal to link green energy to blue states and union jobs. That is to say, Democrat-leaning states for those not familiar with our chromatic nomenclature in the U.S. And so this further politicizes the overall package. It creates some question of whether or not, at least in the near years, there's more policy volatility than otherwise might meet the eye. Now, in the long run, renewable project developers are like any other energy developer. They do want lower tax rates. They do want lower labor costs. They do want faster environmental permitting. And so there's probably a case to be made that Republicans, red states in that nomenclature, will start to find support at least outside of the major oil-producing states, for some of these renewable credits and maybe not want to get rid of them entirely. But change them, modify them, make them cheaper, I think we should expect that this isn't a done deal. The last thing I'll mention is that the EV credit isn't nearly as generous as it could have been. It's probably not necessary to provide a credit at all to one percenters who are buying second cars to drive about one-third as much in them. But if you ask, is this a path to a mainstream vehicle diffusion? Part of the problem is that the credit has been redesigned to encourage domestic sourcing of critical minerals and battery components. That availability is going to limit the credit's applicability even to vehicles that meet a new price cap on applicability. And the means test, the means test isn't particularly egregious. Household incomes of $300,000 or less will still qualify for the full credit value. But all these things mean that it's really more about a, a go-slow path, the, the EV credit, than the originally Build Back Better Act's massive expansion and grossing up to make the credit even bigger for even longer.
We're going to have to watch this experiment play out. Some of the extra bells and whistles on these things could make this a lot more challenging. So we'll see how it plays out. Anyway, as the transition to a sustainable economy gathers pace, we are seeing many, many more firms, particularly public companies, committing to a transition to net zero, often driven by their own investors. Now, this kind of investor pressure has the potential to create a virtuous cycle. But do you think these companies will be able to make good on these commitments? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of companies have said, we're going to be net zero and we're going to figure out how we're going to do that soon. Or maybe some of them have it now, but they're working towards those goals. What is your prediction? Well, first of all, the definition of what qualifies as a a clean energy resource or an ESG-compatible company is still very much up for grabs. The Securities and Exchange Commission is talking not only about the nomenclature, but also, of course, about the, the mechanism of disclosure for emissions that come out of the companies themselves. Some companies are better suited for actually meeting these net zero goals than others. There's a couple of things that we've written about in our work that we've tried to highlight. One of them is that some of the companies that are currently reviled by environmentalists for producing hydrocarbons are best qualified to be putting hydrocarbons back in the ground through CCS projects. Their ability to manage large engineering projects and to work with big budgets to do so, and their knowledge of the subsurface qualifies them essentially uniquely to be putting it back in after taking it out and getting paid both ways. Some of that is actually innately aligned with the ESG agenda, assuming that it's an ESG agenda that is defined what we would call pragmatically, as opposed to prescriptively. If the only solution is to become a wind and solar company, then the core competencies of some of these publicly traded companies are not necessarily well aligned. And actually, they face kind of an interesting disadvantage in competing with new entrant peers. Consider it this way. Like if you think about renewable energy projects sort of like a bond, right? You have a lot of upfront investment and then you pay out electricity coupons. From that perspective, it's a spread business. And you sign a a PPA at a given price and the cheaper your upfront fixed costs are and your financing costs are, the better for your spread overall. Well, the effort to take these big oil companies and put disclosure obligations out there, and this is true for other fossil intensive industries as well, that put it in investors' face that there's a potential stranded asset risk that essentially heighten the concern about the viability of investments. And it's not clear that's how the rules will turn out, but they could turn out that way. And if they have that effect, essentially you will now have companies that will be sourcing debt and equity at a higher cost because investors will be less willing on a consolidated enterprise basis to support those companies with their dollars. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they're not going to be as competitive at getting into that spread business of wind and solar as new entrants that don't have fossil legacies. So it's a bit of an irony, and we'll have to see how it plays out. But the definitions really do matter, and the modalities really do matter. One of the consequences, or I suppose results, of the war in Ukraine seems to be that the very prescriptive ESG modalities that were on the cusp of becoming law or regulatory practice, particularly in Europe, with the formulation that you would have no nuclear or natural gas included in the taxonomy, that kind of idea seems to have given way to some greater pragmatism. We're seeing new pragmatism in terms of what natural gas and nuclear can do to stabilize resources. And so it's possible that this bleeds through to a more pragmatic ESG orientation. And that really does increase the capability of a lot of companies 
to make this transition to net zero. But in the end, there are some companies that are going to be wholly unsheltered. And for them, it's a return of capital moment. For them, the best they can do is look for a golden sunset until they collide with the x-axis. So it's not clear we want that. If you look at how quickly companies can get out of business when the, the regulatory underpinnings in which they operate change, it can be pretty alarming. One of the examples I mentioned was ethanol in the United States. The producers of methyl tertiary butyl ether, the gasoline additive that ethanol replaced, got out of the MTBE business in the U.S. in a hurry. And what that did is it left a gap in supply. They did it because the rules changed and the circumstances weren't favorable to keep selling it in the U.S. What it did, it well, put a bid on ethanol for one thing, but it left supply about roughly 2% short of where it might have been in the fuel pool. You don't necessarily want to see ESG crowding out incumbents in that much of a hurry. And so move to a more pragmatic framework, even if not every company can make the cut, might still be better for overall energy security. Well, that's a real challenge ahead. I mean, weighing the market-driven net zero, let companies kind of sort it out, meet their obligations, even though the standards are unclear. And certainly if Gary Gensler gets his way at the SEC, they're having all these disclosure requirements, driving that, essentially demanding everybody to put your money where your mouth is. And then you have the alternative of a, what you described earlier, if we go down these very convoluted policy paths, which would you favor? Do you trust the net zero strategy or do you say, well, maybe a proper long-term policy path forward is a better way to get the outcome? I think there's a pretty big lesson in what came out of the legislative process for the Inflation Reduction Act. There's no question that putting a durable price on emissions would have created long-term incentives. It's not politically viable, that much is clear, but there were some mechanisms that were still being considered even up until the sort of the last days, including border adjustments, which themselves can work like a price on carbon, just in a different mechanism. It doesn't matter whether you price it at the coast or at the capital. Eventually, for primary goods, it bleeds through to the broader economy, and you have a, a closer to a real carbon price. Now, it dropped out. You know, things that looked like they were taxi weren't viable. And so if you're only going to be able to do this with sugar and with no vinegar, if you're only going to be able to do this when you can lay out chunks of cash in 10-year windows, the ability to actually deliver on some of these goals, especially when we get out past 2032 and into the long term, up to 2050, there are really big heavy lifts that are going to follow from there. It's going to be a question whether we're setting ourselves up to be able to do this in a durable and consistent way that really attracts and sustains investment of the kinds that we're going to need, the trillions of dollars a year in transition investments. And I think it's probably safe to say that there's going to need to be additional work done if they really truly hope to bring about those kinds of changes. And this is where I get a little skeptical. One of my sources of skepticism is we've seen what high prices have done politically and how destabilizing they are. And so it's not obvious that 10 years hence, there will be more political impetus to do this or more wherewithal to deliver it. It may be easy to talk about it now, but it may not get any easier to do. And even though border adjustments seem like they're probably going to happen, they're probably going to end up locking in national advantage in a more protectionist sort of way than they really end up working in the broader sense to encourage transition in a rapid way. And then there's the question of the overall warming itself. The proposition we're laying out here, whether we spend hundreds of billions to trillions of dollars in government incentives, whether we spend trillions of dollars a year in private investment, is doing so while the temperature continues to warm. 
this is problematic. At some level, there's going to be a, a movement towards an intervention of a broader sort, a geoengineering solution that has the effect of lowering temperatures in a hurry. Why do I say that? Why am I so convinced this is likely to happen? I'm convinced it's likely to happen because when I look at humanity, I don't see a lot of people taking the long, slow road that's super hard. That's just not our nature. And when I look at our political systems, there's really no support for that kind of commitment. If you say, well, we'll mitigate our way through it for the next 30 years of rising prices and temperatures, you're probably not going to get reelected. So there's going to be some degree of incentive to look at things like stratospheric aerosols and some of the other currently controversial solutions. And this raises, Scott, sort of a bigger question about transition viability. If we do go down that path, and you might argue that direct air capture is a step in that direction because it's an outside-the-system engineering solution and therefore more of a geoengineering than an energy engineering. If we do go down that path, you're a healthy, fit guy. You probably enjoy running and working out. But for most of the population, if there was a pill you could take that made you fit and hot, would you still go to the gym? The mitigation and transition investment will lose its business case if we start to go into this major intervention geoengineering future, at least in a way that doesn't somehow protect the ability to continue the transition viability. Because diet products as a business would probably dry up when the fit and hot pill goes on sale. Now, Kevin, I'd like to finish up by asking you what I ask every guest, a bit about your background. You've worked in this energy markets for most of your career. We worked in Washington together, which was always fun and interesting. How did you get into this sector and why? Well, Scott, I will blame a golden retriever puppy, mostly. I was living in D.C. I grew up there, and my mom bred our golden retriever and sold one of the puppies to an energy lawyer who lived on the block. When it was time to get an internship in college, he obliged me with some great skepticism, I might add, and I took a job in the messenger room of an energy law firm and then spent the next several summers learning the business you don't usually get to thank a golden retriever for a career opportunity in energy, but I certainly will. I would also say, though, that you know, I, I happened to hit things in studying economics in college at a really interesting time. The idea of using markets to manage environmental pollution, the sulfur acid rain program, had just come into existence. And there were a lot of intriguing ideas that appealed intellectually to me about energy that I hadn't previously considered you know, growing up, particularly in a place like Washington, D.C., where there's a lot of soft palm handshakes and not too many energy production facilities. Well, that's excellent. You've done a remarkable job. You're on all the news programs. You testify frequently. So you've certainly turned it into a pretty lucrative business by sticking with the facts and being as knowledgeable as you are. So terrific job on that front. Kevin, thank you very much for talking about energy with us today. We're out of time for this episode, but I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Scott, it was a real pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. Scott, we heard a pretty comprehensive outlook for energy markets there. Do you have any reaction to what was said? Well, Russian reduction in gas supplies is clearly creating a serious challenge for Europe, which policymakers are working to address, and we're going to see further sanctions and actions coming on in the weeks ahead. I suppose the one positive is that there could be further acceleration in the push for alternative energy as sources. But the balance between the transition and energy security is so tenuous, as Kevin pointed out. As we have said at the start, that will take time and it will take trillions of dollars of investment through building infrastructure for a green economy at a very precarious time. 
you know, certainly financial markets can play a key role in channeling the necessary financing to these projects and initiatives, like through the development of voluntary carbon markets, which we've discussed in the last episode. That's just one of many tools that will be needed to achieve this. But there's no getting away from the fact that the shortage of gas supplies and the resulting high prices mean we will be facing challenges in the winter ahead. Okay, thanks, Scott. That's about all the time we have. Before we sign off, just a reminder that you can access all our latest research and analysis, as well as legal documents and other member resources on the ISDA website. Please do also keep your eyes peeled for future episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.